It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. There we go. We are live on YouTube. This is episode 43 of the Team House. I am Jack Murphy here with co-hosts over there or down there, Dave Park. Uh, today, our guests on the show are authors Peter Singer and August Cole. Uh, they are the authors of a new novel called Burn In, which I finished last night. We're really excited to talk about. It is a book about the sort of, I guess we'll let them get into it, but the collision course between human beings and artificial intelligence. Uh, so it's a really insightful book, uh, near future book. I wouldn't even call it science fiction. It's not like Star Trek or something. This is what we're gonna be dealing with in the next 20 years. Uh, so Peter is a strategist at New America. He has a PhD from Harvard in government. He's the author of seven books, including Ghost Fleet and Burn In, which he co-authored with our second guest here, August Cole, who is a non-resident senior fellow at the Brent Scowcroft Center on Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council. And he is a former Wall Street Journal reporter. So both of you guys, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Oh, thanks for having us. Really appreciate uh, it. It's great to be here. So uh, just to kick this all off, I mean, I think I'd like to ask you guys if you can give us a little thumbnail sketch of what this book is about, rather than me giving you the synopsis myself, since, you know, you're the authors, you know, you know it better than anyone. I'll jump in on that. Um, and again, well, I really want to thank you for having us on. It's, it's a great group and um, just really appreciate it. Uh, so Burn In, uh, the title is taken from the idea of when you push a new technology to the breaking point in order to learn from it. Uh, so for example, uh, you know, how deep can you take a new watch before underwater before it cracks or something like that. And so that's essentially the idea of the book. Um, it's a smash up of a novel and nonfiction. So it's a techno thriller. It follows a veteran uh, turned FBI agent who's hunting a terrorist through the streets of a future Washington DC. So you get those kind of thrills and chills and interesting things like that. Uh, but baked into the story are over 300 uh, explanations and predictions that are all drawn from the real world. And in the back of the story are 27 pages of research notes to show, hey, this really is drawn from the real world. This really can happen. Um, and so you get 
the fun of the story, but you also walk away from it understanding, you know, everything from um, how does AI work? What are going to be some of the applications by military, by police, by terrorists? Um, what are going to be some of the dilemmas that we're going to have to face? Um, uh, August and I are both dads, and uh, we kind of liken it to sneaking fruit and veggies into a smoothie. Uh, so you get the entertainment, but you also get the good stuff at the end. Yeah, that could be a really, uh, you know, dubious endeavor for, or, or with a lot of pitfalls for it, I feel like for a lot of authors who they try to take their profession and weave it into a novel to, you know, reach a larger audience with it through a narrative story. Um, but I feel like you guys pulled it off really well. And I, I would even say you did a good job at, um, at, at filling a void that was left by the late Michael Crichton. Um, you know, this is, uh, all of the characters in the book are very smart, which is something I appreciated. And, and the protagonist is a female FBI agent who is a former Marine. And when she was in the Marines, her job was working a lot with droids, with, uh, with drones and different sorts of robotics that, that would, you know, help out uh, a squad or a platoon of Marines. So it's interesting how she came to it, her interaction with the AI is uh, very pragmatic. She sees it as another tool but then to see how other people interact with it. Like for instance, her daughter like falls in love with this thing and just loves it <laughs> like a big toy. You know, trying to characterize the human machine relationship is a really interesting challenge. I mean, you know, writing a memorable or interesting character that's human is, is I think hard enough. What we were trying to do was to, you know, use the way that this agent Laura Keegan relates to the, the bot as a, as a way to talk about some of these really big issues around trust about, you know, is technology good or bad? Mm -hmm. They're kind of like meta themes, but we feel, you know, when you're looking at trying to understand them, being able to see what it looks like in a real world context, even if that world is, you know, 15 years from now. And, you know, one of the things, Jack, that's interesting, you, you noted her background, that role that she has is actually the new role in Marine squads. Uh, and so, you know, again, we play that forward and go, okay, what does that person take from Right. their experience in war, including in this new role that, you know, people are living out there right now. And how do they take from that and bring it back into uh, mm -hmm. their home life, back into their next job? Um, and just as August said, it also um, makes her a character where, and I think a lot of people have experienced this, uh, you know, she's, she's used the technology, she knows what it's good for, but she also knows that it's not perfect, that it breaks, right. that there's, there's flaws to it. Um, she also brings uh, a lot of the lessons that she's learned out in the war zone uh, and applies them into this space. Uh, it makes her, um, uh, I think, savvier. Um, also makes her make some, maybe some mistakes too. Uh, and so again, you know, we, we try and have it that she's a, a, a character with some depth to her. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I would not go as far as to say that the book is dystopian per se. It's not uh, cyberpunk necessarily. It's... Uh, it's more very near future, and but it does address a lot of the fallout of the things that are happening right now and how that can project itself, uh, you know, 20, 30 years having, you know, in, in her case, you know, endless wars. And, you know, she's talking about how she has this nerve damage uh, in her legs. And it's like, I, I know people who have that exact same problem, you know, so it is very relatable. Um, but before um, we, we dive deeper into the book, uh, I want to kind of address the larger issue of AI and kind of play devil's advocate here a little bit, because your book is the premise that AI is the next revolution. This is the big thing that is going to hit the human race and we're all going to have to grapple with. 
Now I'm 36 years old. When I was a little kid, virtual reality was the big thing that was going to change the world. It was going to change everything. And then it even had a little second uh, renaissance like five years ago. VR was back, uh, you know. And then what are some of the other technologies that, that have come around? And then it seems like they, they peter out and they go away. Oh, when I was a teenager, nanotechnology. We were talking about universal constructors and we were each going to have the power of a god, be able to, you know, uh, you know, I remember reading one book about how you'd be able to move your hands and make your house bigger and then contract it, make the house smaller again, hold it in the palm of your hand. I mean, all this sorts of like very like utopian thoughts about technology. I was wondering if you could explain to us why this is different, why this, why this craze, if you will, um, or, or let's just say caution about artificial intelligence is the real deal. And it's something we all need to be taking seriously. I'll jump onto that, August, and, sure. and, and you then um, hit next. Uh, so that's one of the, um, I think, values that you get by uh, the combination of, you know, going after the fun, exciting story, but also backing it up with the research. So we need to be clear here. There's um, no vaporware in this story. Every single technology uh, already exists, is already either deployed out there or already in the real world. And so I think that um, allows you, one, it gives you uh, the sense of realism. Um, it also means that uh, you don't get stuck in those kind of you know, pie in the sky things that you're talking about. It's basically mm -hmm. saying, okay, let's just take um, where we are at right now with uh, be it um, Siri, Alexa, big data tracking, um, face recognition software, maybe it's on the robotic side, uh, what we've seen with prototypes of everything from, you know, the tiny handhelds that um, uh, micro drones that are starting to be used in swarms to people have probably seen the videos of um, the uh, Boston Dynamics ones uh, that, yeah. you know, do, you know, do parkour or whatever. And again, remember, that's something, you know, those videos, they're going viral. A lot of them are from like 2016, 2017. So we said, okay, what does that look like as you move that dial forward? And um, what we're seeing play out is um, essentially a new industrial revolution. Uh, and it's affecting you know, all sorts of different roles, all sorts of different jobs. Um, you know, frankly, coronavirus has accelerated a lot of this. Uh, you are seeing um, telemedicine. Um, it took us a couple of weeks to get where that industry thought they would be in 10 years. Um, you're seeing drones rolled out in policing, you're seeing robots clean subways, you're seeing big data tracking. Um, so again, I think it's, it's a new industrial revolution, um, but it's not, you know, it's, again, it's not pie in the sky. It's gonna have good effects, it's gonna have bad effects, it's gonna be used in lots of different ways out on the battlefield as a decision aid um, in the command post. Same thing, your, your kid might have AI infused toys, um, but I think it goes back to where you started, where we come down on it is um, this idea that there's a really fine line between utopian and dystopian views of the future. And it really kind of depends on where you are in that society, right? right so, yeah. you know, you get a different <laughs> perspective you know, from the cop's view versus the person that's being policed. Um, the cop in this case takes off her, you know, identity outside the door, goes into her house, and now she's a mom. Now she's also, um, her husband is working remote. She's seen it hit her marriage. Um, and, you know, I think of that, August, and I've been kicking around of like a lot of these things that you see get pushed out there uh, by Silicon Valley or whatnot. Um, 
it's often, you know, they're super excited about it. And you're like, hey, that kind of feels a little bit creepy. It's cool, but it's creepy. And so again, that's the real world side of all of this. You know, there, there's this aspect to the AI sector that has always you know, existed in a, in a bubble of hype. What, what's significant, I think, in the last, you know, six or seven years has been, you know, a couple of different breakthroughs. One is actually on the hardware side, not just on the software side, but uh, the sorts of chips now that can uh, essentially power what are called neural nets. So imagine a computer, you know, processing capability that's based off of our own, you know, brains. What's funny about that is that we don't really understand, I mean, I'm a history major, I'm not a scientist, but, you know, scientists don't really even understand the full function of our own, you know, neurological systems. And yet we're, we're able to create these really interesting architectures that allow computers to crunch huge amounts of data that they couldn't before at speeds they couldn't before. And then also to learn by essentially, whether it's playing against themselves, if you will, whether it's uh, doing sorts of free association, that's not like creativity as we see it, but is similar uh, in that the way that they understand, say the parameters of a goal might allow them to reach an outcome, you know, a robot that, for example, tips itself over to move more efficiently than one that might try to walk, you know, as a biped. So we're, we're at this really interesting, inter, you know, inflection point where, you know, you're seeing those two technologies, you know, neural net and machine learning computing come together with this next generation of chips from companies like NVIDIA. And then suddenly along with that, the deployment of these technologies. And, and what's really interesting about a lot of the tech I think out there right now that is so transformational is you don't see it and it's all around us, you know, it is a really big challenge. I think when you have a software driven world, you know, Mark Andreessen famously said that software is eating the world. Uh, and, you know, you've had people like at War of the Rocks, right? Software is eating the war, you know, we're at this, you know, cognizant point where we, we acknowledge that uh, we are moving past the hardware paradigm and not just computing, but, you know, conflict even. And at the same time that rests upon, you know, access to and processing, you know, more data than we've we've ever produced. I think it's like, you know, you produce like a Kindle's worth of data every second individually or something. Um, I should have that stat, you know, more nailed down. But the point is, it's literally like an unimaginable amount of data. And and you know, as as we try to conceive of what is the import of that in our everyday lives, well, we're starting to see it, as Pete said, in the coronavirus response. You know, this well of data can allow, of course, something as simple as contract tr contact tracing, which I know isn't simple, but it's a fairly upfront example. But yet all the you know, movement to virtualizing industries like teaching, you know, this conference call, they're all powered in effect by these big breakthroughs in computing power. And so you know, what makes this, this time is different. I mean, I lived in San Francisco during the 90s and worked you know, in the tech sector during the dot-com boom. You know, I've seen you know, the hype uh, build around not just companies, but whole kind of concepts you know, that this time it's different. And in, in my gut, I always had this feeling because I'm a fairly optimistic person, but I'm, but I'm quite skeptical and pragmatic too, that, that no, that, you know, there were certain rules like, you know, gravity, if you will, that like weren't going to go away. But with AI, it's different in part because you're starting to break the bounds of, uh, you know, the, the kind of linear ways that computers have worked in the past into a more exponential uh, you know, type of processing. So when computers are teaching computers, when they're writing their own code, which is, you know, we're getting very close to that point, Right, right. It's yeah. like the, the machines are having sex with each other and it's changing the <laughs> DNA. You know, so, so you're, you're at, this, at this really interesting point where, where you know, it, it, is, it is right to be skeptical, I think, about hype. Uh, I didn't mean to cut you off there. Sorry, David. But, um, but, but, but I think at the same time, um, 
and again, as someone who's spent a lot of time being a cynic professionally or a skeptic, um, I do now that I'm in the midst of this, see it with with a with a, a lot of potential and optimism. But but as as you know, Pete has I think iterated in the book shows we have a lot of concerns about how this is being put together in terms of how it affects society. Yeah, there's one other. Oh, I'm sorry, Dave. I was being off the one other thing that drives it. I think relevant to your community is um, the competition side of this uh, drives it forward. So it's not just the supply side, the tech getting better and the like. It's the fact that um, you have all these applications, not just in the business, but in the war. Um, and again, it might be in visible ways, um, uh, you know, ever more advanced um, unmanned aerial systems, UGBs, you name it. But it's also, you know, woven into, um, they call them decision aids. Uh, you know, I was at a, a, a talk that um, had recommendation engines for um, which route for people to go. Uh, it was um, essentially like a ways map, but for projecting expected casualties that you'd take if you went different routes. You already have that thought out. And then you have this larger strategic competition with China. And you know, China has said they want to be the world leader in AI by the year 2030. Um, in turn, the US national defense strategy has said, no, 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 we want to be the world leader. And so that also you know, makes it different than like you know, VR gadgets for kids or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. The stakes are so high. You know, I, I you know, was a teenager in the 80s. So, you know, you had Skynet, you know, Terminator, you had sort of all, you know, Blade Runner, you had all these big visions of, of what artificial intelligence would become. Is, is there fear of sentience or actual sentience, or is there just more fear of the, the collection of so much data um, <clears throat> that uh, the privacy no longer exists and that that these that these decisions or these these AIs are making decisions based on data that they really they shouldn't have access to or whatever else. I, I you know think that the Terminator fear is you know so shaped by James Cameron's you know film in 1984, uh, which is a great film. Um, I think it was 84. But at the same time, I, I worry more about us, the people, you know, what we're doing right. with the data than I do about a. a there's a book called Superintelligence by Nick Bostrom, which is really interesting. And it posits, you know, a lot of really kind of far reaching scenarios, the kinds that worry, you know, people who do, you know, deep thinking, you know, Bill Gates, uh, Stephen Hawking. And, and, you know, yes, there are scenarios you, you know, a person can't imagine where that is an existential threat to humanity. But I think in the near term, the next 20 years, the greater likelihood is that we're going to cause you know as much or more harm to ourselves perhaps enabled by these technologies sure. rather than the arrival of a, of a super intelligence or a skynet and yeah, I, the the latter uh part of burn-in plugs into some of these ideas about the the fusion of artificial intelligence and big data and uh and, and actually dovetails well with uh peter's previous book like war uh in that these these social media behemoths know more about us than we know about ourselves and, yeah. and really you know i thought the novel really brought to the forefront some horrifying scenarios of what that could look like and i mean not to put too uh fine a point on it but you think about some of the industrial scale murder that happened in the previous century uh with the nazis uh with the soviets Imagine something like that happening again, but with artificial intelligence and with biometrics and those sorts of technologies. And, and if that doesn't scare the hell out of you, I mean, I don't know what would. And China's dealing with that, uh, you know, or I say so the Uyghurs in China are dealing with that right now, right? right. I mean, they're being targeted as an ethnic group with the help of big data, which, which to me is, is terribly frightening and, and, and also risks creating a model that other nations or groups may you know, <laughs> seek to 
acquire, especially if they buy into kind of the Huawei, you know, framework. I think what you're seeing is also this um, shift. So, you know, as, as David laid it out, you have um, all of this different tracking and collection going on and it um, creates, you know, huge amounts of concern over privacy. And the entities that are tracking you are, you know, everything from, um, uh, it might be uh, face recognition. We'll use face recognition as an example. Um, it's been rolled out by, you know, you, there's a defense department program on it to use it for intelligence gathering and targeting uh, face recognition at a one kilometer distance. Um, and you can very quickly, you know, think of the applications of that. Um, policing uh, everywhere from um, US cities uh, to West Virginia, um, it's state police was rolled out face recognition, but it's also being rolled out on the business side. Um, and, uh, you know, everything from, um, Saks Fifth Avenue, the retail company to, uh, our favorite example of is Kentucky fried chicken. Um, and so you get this, you know, a very obvious concern of uh, big brother or in KFC's, uh, example, big, big kernel. Um, you know, tracking everything that you do, because it's not just, you know, who is this person by their face? It's matched back to, you know, everything um, that's brought up that, that in your, your life history, all your posts, your bank data, um, now maybe your health data, and, you know, not just what you posted, but what everyone's ever posted about you, wherever you've been. Um, there's a, a funny example that just surfaced to this, where um, they were able to uh, track movements of um, uh, U.S. Um, intelligence community special operations by a beer uh, app. Uh, yeah, people yeah. were um, signing in even at the um, uh, super secret um, CIA uh, training ground. Um, all off of that, just one app. Okay, so take an AI. That's what humans were able to figure out. Take an AI that sifts through all that, and um, your whole history is laid out. But the big, interesting, really cool really scary vert what comes next is not just tracking your history and where you are right now but making prediction prediction based off of you know all of these analytics and it might be prediction of everything from what's your next physical move to um what are you next gonna buy um what route you might take as a soldier you name it but then you also with all of this get the next phase of it which is not just prediction influence that is, I can steer you to do something. And I, and I might steer you in um, very obvious ways. Um, I pop ads up at you uh, when, you know, uh, August goes into Starbucks when, when, when social distancing is over um, and they recognize his face and they also read the emotions on his face because it can do that too. And they say, ooh, looks like you need a double shot today. And they pre, and, and you go, thank you very <laughs> yeah. much. That's awesome. But it also might be an influence that's, um, oh, we figured out how to um, maybe make you vote a certain way that you don't even know that you're being steered. And that's, you know, again, to me, we get to, that's all real. Um, you know, we got the footnotes to back it up. But what's great about fiction is you can play that out and, you know, see how useful it would be for an operator, for a police officer. Uh, you can also see, you know, how a parent goes, oh, I don't maybe like all of that for my kid, um, you know, that back and forth of it. Yeah, some of the concepts that you unpack in the book, it couldn't help but remind me of uh, Tom Lagotti's book, The Conspiracy Against the Human Race, where he, he has this thesis that free will is a, is a myth, that it doesn't really exist. And it, it feels like, you know, if an AI can predict every single thing we do, 
you have to ask yourself these really unsettling questions like am, am i just a expression of the programming in my dna i mean what 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 is what are these decisions i'm making if a robot knows all of them but anyway your um your novel uh, you know the the protagonist is Laura uh, Laura Keegan, who's a former Marine turned FBI agent. But the show stealer of the book, of course, is Tams, which is this robot fused with an onboard AI. And I felt the way that you wrote it was really believable. It felt really very real. Like if my kid joins the Marines, like she could be working with something like this. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about Tams in your novel, what this what this robot is, what it represents. I think you know one of the ways to to think about a a robot is you know do you do you trust it or not, and when you think about the elements that go into creating trust with technology, it usually comes down to experience. But the interesting thing about uh, a bot like Tams is you know the morphology, the shape of it is really important too, mm -hmm. and you know the use of smaller and smaller robots in in on the battlefield, I think will be more of a paradigm than. You know, big lumbering, you know, I don't know, 20 foot tall mecha kind of things or 30 foot tall meccas, in part because of power, in part because of survivability and, and, and you know, hideability. And so Tams is kind of a fusion of some of those concepts. And, and the, the interesting thing in trying to write that character is really thinking a lot about the physical description and allowing. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. You know, the reader to imagine enough, but also to be able to picture uh, it as a believable, you know, entity. And, and then fusing it with just enough uh, personality, I think that it seems like the kind of technology that, you know, we can see today, but then draw a line forward and think that, in fact, the way that my, you know, operating system on my phone will, will increasingly be able, or Alexa, for example, in your house, increasingly able to learn you and learn to anticipate what you want and what you need, whether it's if you're hungry or not, you know, and the, the, the data of, of, of really everything with the Internet of Things is, is moving more and more to the clothing we wear, to um, maybe the food we eat even. So suddenly a machine like that is gonna know you better than you know yourself. You know, all the biases and kind of willful blindness that we have about our own, you know, weaknesses. Um, you know, that, that, that machine's gonna have like this X-ray vision and just see right through that. And the question is, what does it do with that information? And that was something that was always really, really kind of, I think, interesting to explore and also tricky because, you know, in the same way, like the cell phone, I think, and then the smartphone has totally changed like a detective story because you have the answer to every single question and every bit of research, you know, uh, right there. You know, Tams kind of has that, that same potential peril for, for the story of, of a robot like that. One of the other things that's funny is, um, August, you called Tams a character and it, it is a character, but it's also not. Um, it's a piece of technology. Uh, so, you know, essentially it's take your Alexa or your Siri on the software side, move that forward, but also take the physical robotics that we've seen, you know, we mentioned that you, you see in the YouTube videos or whatnot, move those slightly forward. Um, but it's still, it's just a technology. And it's a technology though, that both we, the readers, but also the character can't help but put our own like human emotions and identity on it. So when it says something, it's just the machine saying it, but 
you read what you think the emotion is. And also there's sort of, you know, a, a wonderful sort of telling moment that reveals, I think, a little bit about the, the, the human character, Keegan, uh, you know, the first time she meets it, it talks to her in a voice that's um, female gender. And, you know, just like what Alexa or like, and she's like, you know, screw that. No, reprogram change. And it's this wonderful little moment that sort of reveals her background and how, you know, she looks at the world of this experience, but also how we also are kind of putting our own like different identities and the like on top of them. Mm -hmm. um, and again, this was pulled um, from the real world. Probably the starting point for this was uh, a, a nonfiction um, book project I did um, way back in the day called Wired for War that uh, looked at um, how unmanned systems were being used out in Iraq and Afghanistan. And um, I came across these, you know, you had a unit in Afghanistan that gave their pack bot uh, that had gotten blown up a military funeral. Um, and, you know, we laughed, but, you know, you would never do that for a Humvee, but that system had saved their lives on several occasions. In another situation um, in Iraq, uh, a packbot got stuck under heavy machine gun fire and someone ran out about 20 yards. It was stuck in the mud to rescue it. You would never rescue, you know, a shovel or a Humvee. But again, they felt this sort of teaming with it. And this is for like packbots that are remote operated. They've got no autonomy. They've got no voice. And yet people were kind of imprinting these emotions on them. And, you know, again, so move it forward. Okay, what is it like when it actually can talk? What is it like when it's got a slightly more human form? Um, and yet, just like our character, you know, you'll be aware of it, but you will keep slipping back into, you know, thinking about it that way as um, beyond just a tool as like an it. I mean, if we'd given Tams a Copenhagen habit, you know, it would have been pretty, I think, authentic. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. August, you said that, you know, the, the, this AI, you know, it, it, they have, they collect all this data or they have this data. And the question is what they do with it. What determines maybe now and possibly in the future, what an, what an AI does with the data? Is it the programming? Is it conclusions that it comes through through its own like logic systems? Like, like what makes it AI? And then, you know, I, again, I guess this is kind of approaching the sentience thing, sentience thing, but you mentioned, you know, you mentioned what it does with it. So what determines that? And what do you see determining that in the future? This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. So, so right now, really, the bounds of what your 
you know, algorithm can do is, is the amount of uh, data and also the quality of the data. You know, it is uh, easily, you know, briefed that, you know, you can teach a you know, neural net to identify, you know, an individual in a mega city. The reality is, you know, trying to get a machine vision system to see what you want it to see, you know, whether it's determining that a, a Toyota, you know, pickup is not a tank, um, is really hard because you have to train that system on 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 millions of images. And there are large repositories uh, called one is called ImageNet, which have their own problems because of the way that data is categorized. So so there's a little bit of a of a of a perception bias in terms of like how capable some of these systems are. That mm -hmm. said, you know, companies or, or groups that invest in, you know, they call it cleaning that data, which is a really manual process, um, can kind of do whatever they want. I mean, we don't have really clear ethics, norms, or laws around the usage of data as it applies to this really, you know, vanguard of computing. Uh, there's a way I've been thinking about it um, in the tech sector. There's been a phrase for a few years now, uh, you know, data is the new oil, right? And I think it's a pretty good way of encapsulating kind of the way that that our own activity online, you know, what we buy, what we choose to do in the real world can be monetized by companies. Uh, you know, there's no such thing as truly free email. Um, but but I think about it, of course, always in the context of conflict and, and, and even war. And I'm like, data is a new ammunition. Um, you know, and when, when it comes to hunting a, a terrorist, uh, even in the US, you know, the utilization of data Raise, you know, you can talk about Title Ten authorities or, or or whatever, but like you know how you not just do, how you approach that problem not just with people but information, um, you know, which is an ongoing you know conversation in our society. You know, should should Apple encrypt its its phones, for example, or, or how hard should that encryption be? But we're getting to the point now where some of the information that you might rely upon getting from the data that's resident in someone's you know cloud account or or or, or phone can be figured out without even having to have that in the first place because these really complex computer systems can make logical leaps almost that we wouldn't otherwise, or just, you know, hoover up so much information and create associations and connections uh, with like machine learning software that suddenly you're able to find someone in a mega city individually, not by their face, but perhaps by a mix of bio data, a mix of uh, browsing activity, a mix of consumer information. Um, so, so, you know, I don't know if I answered it maybe as cleanly because it's a complex, for me at well, least trying to, it's a complex, you know, subject, but but the answer is, you know, it's limitless right now, and, and I don't expect limits to be to be to be put on it. And that's the world we, we created in Burn In, right? Where that happens commercially, it happens uh, in, in tech, it happens in uh, in government as well, and also, you know, adversaries get that kind of access too. So I think other thing I want to ask about TAMS in very much what your novel was about is the the fusion, uh, the relationship between human beings and these AIs. And I think it was, I, I had a conversation with John Robb who said something that it's gonna be like our relationship with you know, horses or domesticated animals in the past, that there's gonna be this symbiosis between humans and AIs. And I, I don't know if you agree with that or, or what you think that relationship will be, but since the novel is so much about that and how the two are gonna integrate, because in the book, you know, again, it's about an FBI agent paired up with an AI during this detective story so like literally her cop partner if we were to look at it as a buddy movie is, is an artificial intelligence i mean how do you think that sort of relationship between us and our creations will hash out in the coming decades that's a great um issue and it's actually one of the core questions uh 
not just for you know military doctrine moving forward, um, but you know really humanity moving forward is this um, idea of uh, human machine, the human machine relationship, or sometimes called human machine teaming, and um, you will see, and, and we use the book to explain um, all sorts of different forms of that teaming. So uh, one part of the form might be um, uh, complete task delegation. Uh, you send out a small set of drones to survey the, the ground in front of you. Um, a, a company uses a drone um, or, you know, I, I saw a marine landing exercise that did the same thing that uses a drone to autonomously deliver something. Um, it's a, you know, in that case, it was an MRE, uh, but it might be, you know, Amazon. I mean, Amazon recently rolled out a, a test version of this in Virginia. Um, so it might be it out there. It, it is out there doing its work on its own without you tasked to do it. It might be um, instead the idea that it is, um, you know, you, you'd use the, the parallel of the horse. The one that's more often talked about is like a police dog. Um, mm -hmm. So you're partnered with it, but it goes and does uh, something. Um, it's tasked out. So you're partnered, but it's tasked out. You each do what you're really good at. Another model is that it's um, a decision aid. It's not even a physical form robot. Um, it might, it's like, like the predator drone. Um, no, what I'm getting at is it's more like a, um, like a human concierge or like a staff officer in, in a headquarters. Um, it's uh, churning through all the data and providing recommended courses of action. Um, or it might be physical out there advising, sifting through data, translating it for you. Another one is the idea that it's a wingman. Um, and literally the Air Force, the program is called that, a robotic wingman. It's like a true partner. Um, it's right there alongside you. And, you know, so what we're getting at is you have these totally different visions and um, each of them are being pushed out. They're being pushed out by different organizations, um, different, different ideas. Guess what? Some of them are going to work well. Some of them are not. Bad guys are going to take advantage of it, go after one way or another. Um, but one of the interesting things, and unlike that idea of like, um, you know, the horse or, or whatever, is that it's a learning machine. So it's not just about your vision of the partnership right now. You're always training it because it's always observing you. Um, and it might be training it and you get that kind of back of your head like, ooh, am I training it to replace me? And this isn't <laughs> futuristic, right? Um, uh, there are radio DJs that train the AI that replaced them last year. Um, and, but there's, you know, people worried about that on the, the military side or whatever. So it might be, I'm trained to replace me or the other is, um, the kind of the role that uh, any leader has or any parent has, it's always watching me. Am I training it like poor, am I giving it, you know, by example, you right, know, the, right. the old, you know, the, the, the goofy, um, drugs commercial. I learned it by watching you dad. Um, you know, so if, if, if this system is always watching you, it's also going to pick up, you know all your bad habits or, or other people's bad habits, um, or um, it might be trained off of um, situations or extraordinary. One of the funny versions of that literally we're all gonna deal with um, is that all the shopping, uh, so your, your AI steers you ads um, on uh, you know, Amazon life. It, what's happening coronavirus is warping all of that. So all the shopping um, algorithms 
are, are being, you know, trained by this extraordinary situation. So, you know, basically they're going to be steering you bags of rice for like the rest of your life. Cause they think that's what humans want. And you're like, no, I only wanted it for like that, that one, two week period when I was freaking out. <laughs> um, and, you know, so we've got sort of a similar and we'll plot spoil. There's no pandemic in the book, um, but there is sort of this big emergency moment. And, you know, one of the things that our, our human character, she's like, hold it. Like, is this machine going to learn like from this disaster playing out and think it's like this is what humans do? Well, there's the part of the book where she takes the the AI to a very deviant type of strip club and has to tell it like, no, plot spoiled. Fil- filter all this, t- take all this data out because this is like such an abnormal human experience and it poisons the data if you subject, like, like you said, like if it was a kid, like you're exposing them to things they shouldn't be exposed to. I mean, the the way that, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna engage in that learning process is probably gonna be more passive than active. Like you're not gonna realize necessarily that you're training a system uh, to, well, it doesn't have to even be replace you, but to you know, optimize you know as as someone who's maybe running a company that's going to do that for you. You know, they're trying to quote unquote optimize your world, uh, or you know, in the you know military context, you know, you might be working with a decision aid that is you know shaping you and has the 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 near term objective of you know accomplishing whatever you know task or mission, but also might be thinking about your career because it also knows the metrics that you might be promoted on or not promoted on. Um, you know, there's a really complex web. Of, of weightings that get figured in. And what's, what's interesting is there's this whole black box aspect where you know, if you're gonna say the relationship between a human and a, and a piece of software or, a, or an actual bot or a, a jet, you know, like Firefox and Clint Eastwood because I'm also a child of the 80s. Um, it, what, what are the, the, mo- the, the, the motivations of those who are setting up those parameters? You know, how is the system weighted? You know, what are its priorities? And that's really, really opaque. And some of it is because we're creating systems like Google Translate that one of my favorite things to do is occasionally, you know, they'll roll out a new edition. It'll work twice as good, if not more. And, you know, the article will say, and the people who gave us this breakthrough don't know why it's been working better now, but it is. That's fascinating, right? I mean, we don't, you know, usually if you have like a more efficient engine, uh, you know, in an automobile or even a, you know, a jet turbine, like or a a turbofan in a, in a, you know, commercial like aircraft, like that's the product of, hundreds and thousands of hours of like human and, and computer, you know, partner engineering. So that's a form, an expression of that. This is something altogether different and, and much, much more difficult to kind of ascertain what exactly is going on. I'm sorry, go ahead, Peter. Yeah, I was going to rip off the, you know, that black box idea. Um, it's important in two ways. So one is this notion of um, the very, we, we can't understand it. Um, we, we don't know why it comes to the conclusions that it does, but that's the very value of it because if we could understand it um you know we could do it ourselves right now and i I heard uh, for example the head of um there's a there's an ai program for special operations command and he sort of put it that way is their challenges that they 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 want to buy it they want to use it but no one literally can understand it so how do you buy it under the you know u.s government acquisition system but there's another part of the black box problem that's um a little bit is what what drove us forward with the book is that it's a whole technology area that all of these different organizations say is so crucial to their future, whether it's that single military command or the overnational um, defense strategy to um, you look at every Fortune 500 company, they all say AI is so key to my future. Um, and yet 
we don't even understand kind of the basics of it, the terms, the applications. Um, and, you know, I can illustrate that with numbers. There was a survey taken of leaders and um, only 17% of them said that they had even a, a familiarity with AI, let alone its applications. And we know leaders, you know, lie, like, so it's probably not 17%, but again, if, you know, over, if all these organizations are saying it's important and only 17% say, I even have a familiarity with it, then we've got a disconnect, we've got a problem. And so for us, you know, the way that we go after that is strangely enough with a novel. Um, it's the idea that um, most people are not gonna read an academic paper about how AI works. Um, no one ever said, man, that was such an awesome PowerPoint. Uh, you ought to read it by the pool too or on your next flight. Um, but they will read a novel. They will talk about it, share about it with someone else. And so the idea is that we can go after the second black box problem, the human side, um, by tapping into that sort of human need for story. The, uh, you know, I had read that uh, the article that, uh, that Henry Kissinger and Eric Schmidt had written earlier in the year, and they mentioned how AI on cars it, it like starts moving the car forward, like creeping forward at red lights, just like actual drivers do. But they, no one knows why the AI starts doing that. Rep, like mimicking, are they mimicking the behavior of the other drivers? Like, what is it? And I mean, so beyond the, the obvious kind of layperson problem that I'm not an engineer, so of course I don't understand AI and machine learning on that level. Um, but there's something, there's a phenomenon taking place that even the experts don't totally understand what the hell is going on here. It, it's a really great phenomenon to see because it doesn't point us towards any one direction. And what, what I, you know, as someone who doesn't have a technical background and, and you know, gets to work in and around these issues, it, I kind of try to use that as a way to create space for people who can bring perspective that, that a true, like a pure engineer may not have. Because honestly, you know, if you don't have a much larger conversation, especially at like the society level, or, mm -hmm. you know, take the example of within a, you know, a government agency or, or you know, in a military, um, you know, combatant command, right? Like, you know, being able to have a very fulsome conversation about the true capabilities, about the mysteries, right? About the performance and kind of objectives that you have with the capability that, you know, isn't necessarily as expensive as traditional acquisitions either, which is part of the challenge too, because it doesn't fit quite in the same dollar buckets as, you know, an F-35 or something like a, you know, a large submarine. So the point is, you know, you're at this, at this like, inf you know, entering this zone where you're dealing with technology that's difficult to understand. It is even a challenge to come up with a common framework or, or, or set of base level definitions about what, what AI is, because there's of course many different, you know, permutations, which makes it very difficult again to kind of have this, uh, very defined, you know, rigid um, interaction with like a bureaucracy that needs to acquire that capability. And, and yet also creating space for that surprise and kind of that mystery, because especially in a, in a conflict context, you know, when people do unorthodox or audacious things, those are often actions that are closely linked to not just tactical, you know, success, but like strategic victory. And so you, I think are going to get into a really interesting zone where, we're going to be probably experimenting more than we're we're either admitting or or are uh, are comfortable with in part out of necessity mm -hmm. uh, especially you know if the conversation right now is about great power conflict and that means china which has a, a very diff very clear and well-funded ai program for not just its pl you know the pla but for a whole of society 
um, you know, we're going to be in a position where we don't get to take baby steps and the side that is a fast follower, you know, to use the tech jargon that waits to see what works because of the, the super speed of a, you know, decision-making, you know, neural net or, um, you know, targeting systems that are used by swarming under C capabilities, like you can't go second. Um, and that's something that I think we haven't quite figured out yet with doctrine, at least in the, you know, the, the public sphere. And the, in that the other idea, subject, I'm sorry. I, I, uh, I was just going to add the other subject uh, that we also have to compete with is the Chinese have very little ethical considerations, it seems, when it comes to something like gene editing. So there's the whole biological side of manipulating our genetics as well that we may, we may not feel like it's something we want to do, but other actors around the world may not feel the same way that we do about it. But I'm sorry, go ahead, Peter. No, no, it hits it perfectly because what you're bringing in is something that um, you know anyone on the military side would recognize, which is the enemy gets a vote. So you have your plans, um, you know. So you you've got the plan for the AI, you've got the AI um, out there, but you also have you know uh, Clausewitz, you've got fog, you've got friction, and that fog and friction comes from both. Hey, guess what? Um, in the real world, plans don't always work out the way that you expect. And also you have a thinking adversary who's constantly going against them. So, you know, that example of um, the cars, uh, yes, you know, we'll have more and more uh, driverless cars and they'll be doing, you know, on one hand, there'll be massive efficiencies um, and then they'll be acting in these little strange ways that you said, you know, kind of a little hopping forward. But oh, by the way, you the cars will be owned by different entities and different people who will program them differently to different priorities. Um, some of them will be operating completely on their own and some of them will still have a person behind the wheel. And the outcome of that is, guess what? You'll still have traffic jams, just a different kind of traffic jam, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and you know, so we have a lot of fun with that. But again, I think um, it's, it's important, you know, I both, um, a lot of military plans, a lot of military war games, um, as also a lot of um, you know sci-fi uh, has this idea that everything works out the way that you planned. You know, all the technology is clean and perfect, um, and instead, no, you know, things break, things don't work, the enemy goes after it. Um, it's it's unevenly distributed. Uh, you know, back to where we're talking about the different um, uh, the privacy concerns. Guess what? Um, different government bureaucracies uh, will buy different systems. They won't communicate perfectly. Um, you know, so uh, while we can't predict the future perfectly, I think we can predict that we'll have um, a bad U.S. acquisition system still in the future, right? <laughs> there will still there will still be Windows XP, right? I mean, we'll have, you know, AI, you know, hover tanks, but we'll we'll literally probably yeah. still have Windows XP. Yeah, DOD's acquisition system will still be broken in the year twenty one hundred. I'm positive of it. Which is where it's most like China might have, you know, might have an advantage in that sense because, you know, I mean, they, they control it all, right? They, they determine what product or they don't have to go through sort of the democratic process of, of acquisitions or, you know, or whatever. A, a quick question that made me think, because you're talking about cars, completely like automated cars and <clears throat> Being a parent can be really challenging. 
It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit ChildAndFamilyResourceNetwork.org today. I don't know. I don't know what the origin like MySpace was, and then if Facebook was just going to be MySpace, if if it was ever there was ever the intent to become data brokers, or if they figured out that along the way. But it seems as though <clears throat> almost everything at some point will be uh, will be a, a data collector, right? Your car, if your car is automated then your car may send information on every location you go to, how long you spend there, um, every conversation or, or keywords of conversations you have in the car. And that may not matter to Toyota where you go, but are there like big data clearinghouses that collect stuff like it, 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 if maybe Tinder, are they kind of collecting data on what type of people you like? And then it all goes some, cause they don't maybe care, but somebody cares. Because somebody's using all these different data points to create this aggregate, it, it, are there these places like that that basically buy raise information and put it all together? I'll jump on that first, August. Um, what you lay out is basically the two different models of um, kind of strategic competition as well as um, just uh, different um, economic models and the like. So on the China side, you have a government that um, not only has access to all data, but can um, steer uh, companies towards different directions. So uh, you have, um, you know, uh, it, it's chosen its tech powerhouses, the Baidu's and the like, but also they have to share across any and all data. Um, so it's, it's out there supporting them, but that's part of the deal. And so you get the um, result of uh, what's called the social credit system is emerging there. It's right. this idea that you get a single score, just like your, your financial credit score, but it's um, for your, and it's literally called the, your trustworthiness in the eye of the government. And that score um, going into it is everything from um, uh, your online, uh, what you voice online uh, to uh, what you buy. If you buy diapers, your score goes up because you're a good parent. If you spend um, over an hour playing video games, your score goes down because you're goofing around. Um, what it's not just you, it's your network. So if your brother complains about the food at the hospital, which is government run, your score goes down. And so then you go to your brother, hey, knock it off. And the reason is because the score has real impact. Um, it's being woven into everything from uh, if your score is not high enough, you, you, you don't qualify for a certain job application to if it's not high enough, um, you don't get a bed on an overnight train. It's even um, creepily, the underlying software from it is pulled from um, dating software, online dating software, match software. So um, if your score is not high enough, you don't get matched with uh, someone attractive. So that's the China model, sort of this mass comprehensive one. The US system is um, we don't choose our technology champions. They more kind of emerge up and so each of them is, you know, both plowing into AI and also hoovering up all that data and trying to access as many of the different databases that they have, but they kind of um, aren't, you know, 
they don't perfectly overlap. So you'll get these situations, and we're already sort of feeling this, where um, a uh, Facebook might have more data on you than the FBI agent would, or the special operator out in the field might be able to pull up more with a um, open source, you know, web search than they could from uh, their their classified network search. Um, and so you get that kind of mismatch that's out there. But I got one more bad news for you when you were talking about like, oh, is, is, is you know, my driverless car going to collect on me? If you have a car that's, you know, a couple of years old or new, it's already collecting on you. It's, it doesn't have to be robotic for that to happen. Um, and it's collecting not just your movement data, it's connect, collecting um, even some of them collect voice. Uh, and, you know, and that's used to train up AI. So um, anything that's connected now has a sensor and it's collecting on you. You know, there's this other aspect too, where, you know, we'd like to say that consumer choice will drive or dictate, you know, the, the boundaries that we put on, on companies in, in regards to how they treat our privacy. But I don't think the reality and, and really honestly, the value of that data, you know, probably from a corporate perspective is gonna eclipse, you know, that kind of good sense, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I did a little research on this a little while back trying to figure out which of the automakers uh, you know, had better data policies. And from what I could tell, Toyota had a clearer and fairly articulated one that it was essentially going to be more protective. But other automakers, um, it was quite clear that like anything the car collected, they would consider their property. And, th and this is a really interesting thing when you think about another issue that we raise this in the book, but you see it today in terms of how do we handle you know, half of working Americans being out of work. Um, you know, should we be paid for the data we produce? Uh, it's it's the sort of thing where we're when we're trying to kind of think about a post-employment economy, you know, in the in the mid 20th century, uh, excuse me, 21st century, as you know, AI and software do more for us. There is this question of you know what is the economic value of data and who owns it, and that's actually quite a big fight that's looming, um, and it may be one that is you know suppressed or, or sort of you know kept from actually becoming a full-on contest because it has extreme economic implications. You know, some of America's largest technology champions would have very different business models if they had to you know, cut a check or you know, give you like a, a royalty, if you will, in the same way a, you know, a recording artist might. So, so there's, there's certainly you know, what you're saying is so much truth in that. And, and you know, we just don't know. Um, and, and of course there are also you know, the same data brokerage firms today like Axiom and others that work in the consumer credit market that you know, feed information to corporations they're continuing to use, you know, advanced, you know, machine learning systems to, you know, not just, just obviously gather data, but to process it. And, and there's an interesting like special operations aspect of this too, where, you know, the ability to go into areas that have like a A2AD bubble or, or you know, are denied and find people um, in ways that don't require the conventional, you know, a satellite, a drone, being able to tap into those commercial databases, I feel like is going to be something that will be a discriminating advantage in especially a great power conflict or, or a mid to low intensity conflict in, in Northern Europe. And yet we're not really having a conversation you know, about what the rules are. And, and you know, when you look back at the history of special operations, second world war, it was very much a, like break things on the fly and, and get stuff done, especially the British. And, and I, I feel like you know, when we consider the, the implications of not being able to you know, do what we were expected, uh, to do in, uh, strategically, you know, when America uh, sets out an objective like that militarily and says, okay, we're going to use a, you know, small units to do that, um, you know, watching what happens in terms of the, the, the rules that will have to be broken to get those, uh, you know, missions accomplished, 
I feel like the more we can talk about and consider that today, the better a chance we're able going to be able to handle it ethically um, and also effectively. Because uh, you made the point too about our adversaries are going to be pushing and uh, you know past those boundaries and, and breaking those rules before us. So we have to, I think, be in that position where we've at least given it consideration. And you know, law of armed conflict, humanitarian law, like we have, you know, frameworks that kind of speak to this somewhat already. But there almost has to be like another iteration or another version of that that accounts for all this data. When and not just those, but we had actually from the army uh, on one of our first shows, we had somebody from psychological operations, uh, psyops, uh, army psyops on our show, and they were under so many restrictions in terms of doing sort of cyber warfare or battle with other countries because of how it might affect U.S. citizens. So our. It, and I, I, I'm not saying this is necessarily a bad thing. I think it's hard to say, but our government really puts the leash on on our own sort of operations. You know, when it comes to, I, I don't know. I mean, we were talking more about propaganda, but uh, I could see how it would boil over to data and everything else because we are supposed to respect privacy, even though you know that's questionable now. But um, it's it's a very interesting topic. I'll jump on that in part two, because one of the things that's um, fascinating to me is uh, the idea that you'll have, so uh, Gibson, William Gibson is a, you know, awesome uh, um, uh, sci-fi writer. And he talked about how, um, you know, the future is already here. It's unevenly distributed. And, um, you know, we play with that in one way of like, okay, the book, you know, has, it's technologies that are already here, even, you know, some of the attack modes that are, the, that are already here. Um, you know, one of the scenes has a certain kind of cybersecurity breach that um, literally just happened in Israel uh, two weeks ago. Um, uh, we'll plot spoil a little bit. Um, uh, hackers went after um, the uh, chlorine level in um, Israeli water uh, treatment plants. Um, uh, have if you live in the uh, greater Washington DC area um, and you think that the uh, little small towns up the Potomac River uh, have really good cybersecurity on their water treatment plants, it's better than Israeli cybersecurity. I've got really, really bad news for you. Um, but so you got that one kind of technology distribution, uh, different forms. You've got another, which is you know income level. Some people have advanced technology. Some people will still have the old version of it. Um, you have uh, and it might be individuals, it might be organizations, which, you know, when at an emergency, different government units show up at the party and they, they have different levels of tech. But then there's also what you bring up, which is they'll have different um, rules that guide their different systems. So someone in one agency, their system is going to be allowed to do X. Someone in a different government agency um, is going to be allowed to do Y someone working for private sector, it might be a whole nother. And then one of the other, so you got sort of the, the different organizations will be allowed to do different things. I mean, look, we already lived that, you know, you got Title 10 and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So apply that to our um, next generation of technology, but you also have like different geographic areas where you will be, um, uh, different rules will mean it, different things are rolled out. So there might be some places that you go where there's mass amounts of face recognition cameras all over the place. And there might be others where people have sort of decided um, that local community or um, universities right now are saying, um, we're going to ban it on our campus. So it might be like in a city that has tons of cameras everywhere, but on the campus in it, there's not. And, um, you know, 
that cacophony um, from a fictional standpoint, it's really cool to have your character sort of go through that journey from place to place to place. But also I think, you know, for the operator, it means, you know, again, the, the, you're not going to have this smooth battlefield. The, the battlefield environment will have, you know, this, these different areas that you deploy into and you got to be ready for each one. I wanted to also address with you guys, there's a very interesting subplot in your book. Um, and as I was reading it, I felt almost like this could have been like Andrew Yang's campaign book because so much of it is about how AI is not only gonna affect the battlefield and law enforcement, national security, but it's gonna put a lot of us out of work. And you know, for sure there are already you know, blue collar Americans out there who have felt the effects of globalization and their jobs being displaced overseas. But now we're also talking about white collar America. Uh, the protagonists uh, in your novel, her husband is a lawyer and like almost overnight, he's out of a job. And I was wondering if you guys had ever seen uh, Ghost in the Shell standalone complex where there's one episode where, you know, it's a cyberpunk sci-fi show and there it's a court, like the scene is like a courtroom drama and the prosecutor, you know, gives one of those like, your honor, I object. And the judge looks over to a bank of like six different computers, like these black boxes, and they're all bloop, 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 bloop. And then some of them light up red, some of them light up green, and the judge is like, uh, objection sustained. And it sounded, that, that was in the 2000s when that came out, and I thought it was a little goofy at the time. But now seeing where we are today and reading your book and the things you had to say about the legal practice kind of getting wiped out by AI, or at least much of it, it's like, oh, that's not so science fiction-y anymore. It's really interesting when you research how we perceive that risk today. And, uh, you know, we, we've scoured countless reports uh, trying to kind of come, you know, to closer to the truth of what's ahead. And, and the thing that always fascinated me was every time I read a report, it seemed to be that, you know, AI or software driven or robotic driven, you know, job replacement was going to happen to other people, but not the kind of people who wrote the right. reports. Not, not, the, not the people who go to like Ivy League schools and they, right. they did everything, quote unquote, right in life. Right. And so, yeah. you know, the way I'm looking at that is, you know, from, and I used to be a business journalist. So I've seen a lot of, you know, how companies think and make these kinds of investment decisions. It makes a lot of sense to replace very expensive people with very inexpensive software. <laughs> and though a lot of the narrative is on uh, a person who has an hourly job or a mechanical uh, job that can be automated with a, you know, an armed robot, mm -hmm. I actually feel like in finance and law, particularly in, in medicine too, uh, to some extent, uh, now that we're creating so much telemedicine, well, that's training data for the next generation of not deep fake doctors, but, um, you know, sort of tele, telepresence uh, physicians that are synthetic personalities. The, the point is, you know, uh, this sort of uh, automation-driven replacement isn't going to happen to other people. It's going to happen throughout the economy. We will, of course, I think, have a have a have a societal discussion that that acts like this is inevitable, and it's not, right? I mean, we have to know that we have agency in figuring this out, and we have a voice. And one of the worries, I think, when we talk about big tech trends like this, it's it's as if uh, it's looking at a tsunami coming at you, you know, and and there's nothing you can do. But but rather, we can we can decide what we value and what we don't in society. It's very difficult when we're as fractured as we are, and, and I don't expect that to get any better, to be honest. So uh, we may miss out on an opportunity to steer the march of technology in a way that is still creating, you know, a, a, you know kind of a social contract uh, that, that, you know, resembles maybe not the one of the 20th century, because I don't think that's possible, but one that at least feels equitable. Um, and I don't mean in like necessarily in a universal basic income sense, but in that people understand what they can do with work even if it isn't as economically valuable as it would have been in prior generations before this industrial revolution, 
but will allow them to at least have a sense of value and purpose in American society, because that's a crucial issue in keeping this country, I think, cohesive and, uh, and stable in the, in the well, 21st you, century. You used that term post-employment society earlier. What, what does that mean? What does that look like that, you know, <laughs> instead, because Americans, we define ourselves by our jobs, so many yeah. of us. Uh, you know, you have to wonder, you know, spiritually and ideologically as well, how do we define ourselves? It's like some of those things that, you know, maybe Murray Bookchin wrote about um, post-scarcity society. How do we how do we define our lives and find meaning in a world like that? I mean, it's a sense of almost vertigo uh, if you don't have the ability to orient yourself around, you know, how many times when you meet someone, first thing they say is, so what do you do? And, right. and, and that's, you know, obviously an easy way to, to connect because we, of course, you know, prize, prize our professional roles in society. But, but at the same time, you know, we are going to have to, I think, consider what it means to be alive, to raise, you know, families, to connect, you know, what is worth fighting for and kind of, again, my kind of, you know, future conflict, you know, mindset, what, what does a nation truly value, not just at home, but abroad, uh, if it's not as economically engaged in the, in the ways that, that we, you know, used to, uh, you know, say in the 20th century. You see these different um, uh, professions, occupational specialties uh, being altered by this. And, um, you know, just like August mentioned, we, we pulled all of these different studies and they, you know, so sometimes people look at the overall economy and other times they break it down into occupational specialties. Um, Oxford, for example, did a study that found there was, you know, 702 different kinds of jobs out there, you know, truck driver versus uh, surgeon versus whatever. And, and um, you know, almost all of these have military parallels to them. And what they show is just like what you were saying is that, you know, you may have, you may have seen the story in the past of, you know, the factory, factory assembly line worker losing their job to a, a robot. Um, actually, the data shows that uh, each robot on the assembly line meant 3.3 less workers. That's backward looking data in the past. Um, but moving forward, you know, it hits these, it's not broken down by like income level or even sometimes past education level. Um, and you can see, you know, some of the most elite fields being hit by this. Look at the military, right? Um, the, the pilot. Uh, and yet we are right. seeing uh, that replaced. But on the flip side, um, uh, you are seeing a value for things that you can't teach a machine, human intelligence. So, um, you know, yes, we have robotic pilot. No one's talked about having a robotic um, special operator. Uh, same thing, the, the medical equivalent of that. Um, surgeons, the top gun of that field, they used to be measured by, you know, basically uh, how they could tie little tiny strings, you know, that how, how, how still they could hold their hand. We already have robotic surgeons, but robotic pediatricians, we aren't talking about that right now because the role of the pediatrician is like consoling, not just the kid, but the parent. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, what I'm getting at is that you'll, you'll see these different levels replaced um what the 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 number it's not just people don't think it might happen to them but um these reports they're just numbers right and um what you can do in a story is make that weirdly real for people okay how does it affect that you know lawyer who um did everything right went to that ivy league school got the got the good grades got a job that pays a couple hundred thousand dollars a year and that profession that he has in the, in, in the book is that's all true. And it's also one that is identified that's going to be replaced. So how does that mean he, you know, how does he take that out on his marriage or what is it to, you know, what August is bringing up, how does that express itself in politics? Um, Yang um, 
you know, again, uh, utopian, dystopian, good, bad. Um, on one hand, he, he, you know, brought attention to some of these trends that are playing out. On the other hand, um, I think kind of, you know, very typical of someone from the, the tech field um, had sort of an overly optimistic of if we just do X, we can figure it. Um, this universal basic income concept, um, you know, it, it'll solve a lot of problems. On the other hand, think about all the anger of just um, Obamacare for like 8 million people. Now you're talking about, you know, essentially putting the whole population under, you know, what's in a sort of a, a you know, equivalent of what we would have passed called the dull. That's going to be really, really right. controversial, right? Um, so you'll have, you know, that might be, con the solutions will be controversial. The flip side is, you know, the people that lose jobs, um, you know, not everyone's going to uh, stay at home. Some are going to go well, protest. Well, well, both of you guys have, have brought up some really interesting points. And I, I think, you know, then I'd like to ask you, how do you think we can kind of pat, not, I don't want to say pat around, but um, provide some cushioning to society as these technologies advance? What are some things that we could do to try to protect, uh, protect our citizens? I mean, I, I think a lot about societal resilience, you know, is having different different layers. Um, you know, the, the vulnerability that we have right now in our, our technical infrastructure is, is pretty well known. Um, it also, I think, carries over to the way we're connecting our physical infrastructure to the Internet of Things. Um, and that's something I think that has a almost, you know, very kind of linear approach. The cha more challenging thing is almost what we were just talking about, whereas, you know, how do you create a society that can over a generation, because many of the changes will happen, I think, quite quickly. How do you essentially create fields that you know don't exist today? Um, you know, is a bot trainer uh, a field in, in 2040? Like in the same way you have a dog trainer today, um, but that's not enough to to keep a whole society from you know coming apart at the seams. And so there, there is, you know, the approach, does America end up looking more like a European, like Germany, you know, in terms of what it provides in terms of a social safety net, because that's what it takes to keep people, you know, fed, safe, uh, and healthy. You know, the, 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 the question even right now, I think in the midst of a pandemic, when we can't quite agree on whether people should be subsidized by the government and receive more than they might have made in their hourly, hourly you know, roles uh, as workers, you know, speaks to the difficulty in trying to, trying to do that. But, but I would honestly you know, start to go with the fundamentals of what makes a society able to weather a pandemic, what makes it uh, able to weather a conflict. So it's you know, healthcare, creating an excellent healthcare system. Education is, is vital, especially as we start to see those same algorithmic forces being used by both internal and external actors to, to try to you know, create rifts for either profit or, or you know, strategic objective. Um, you know, it's not a very, uh, you know, tech rich or super exciting you know, set of prescriptives because we've been having many of these same debates and, and, and will continue. But I, hopefully if we can start to see the imperative, like the why now, we might actually get, get, get progress. And that's of course expensive. Those are not, not measures that, that come cheaply. But if you think about the cost that we would truly bear uh, to a country that's you know, fighting against itself year after year, year after year, um, you know, simmering, kind of boiling itself, you know, like the, the, the frog metaphor. That, that's that's not going to be an America that can withstand China's rise in the 21st century. That's not an America that can uh, be a good ally uh, to Europe, which we'll need, you know, as Russia uh, continues to to be more aggressive in that sphere. So, um, you know, I, I think those are are really elemental, you know, aspects of of you know U.S. resilience. I love that idea of resilience, um, and you know, to put some numbers on it, like on the on the Internet of Things side, um, we're recreating all of the mistakes that we made with 
regular cybersecurity a generation back with the new internet of weaving in you know everything from smart homes smart power grids to smart military bases smart weapon systems you name it um we're not baking in security uh we didn't bake it in for our communications back um then and we, we've spent the last you know 20 plus years working through all that um we're not baking it in for the physical um, objects to to put some numbers on it uh it is um a study was just out this year that found a um 98% of all Internet of Things device traffic is unencrypted. So if someone penetrates it, they get it. And 57% of Internet of Things devices are vulnerable to medium or high severity uh, attacks. Um, that's crazy that we're, you know, allowing, we're, we're building out this mm -hmm. world that's um, going to be uh, so brittle and so open to attack. It's the same thing, you know, the other side of resilience, though, is um, the the people side of the resilience. And that it's what, you know, August was talking about in terms of particularly some of it may be safety nets. Some of it, I think a big thing is um, retooling our education um, and it within the military, uh, you know, just like we had to retool um, education to deal with cybersecurity uh, starting 15 years back. You know, and for some people is we're going to make you a, you're going to specialize in it. You're going to go into cyber command or information warfare. For the rest of it was also, hey, whether you're infantry, whether you're a logistician, you got to understand a little bit too. Uh, you got to have a better password or whatever. It's the same thing moving forward for these technologies that we talked about. We need to change, you know, again, everything from the PME side all the way to the doctrine. But there's a parallel to that on the civilian world side. We have this crazy mismatch between um, what we teach people and the types of jobs that are going to be out there. Um, the, you know, to give you like a tragic example of it that looms, um, there's a program in uh, Indiana for, um, it was for factory workers that have been um, automated. And so they go, you know, we're retraining them. And it's good, you know, not everybody gets that opportunity, but they're retraining them to be truck drivers, which is like the next on the list to be automated. So they're like, you know, setting these, them yeah. up for a fall, right? Um, and so it may also mean that we need completely different models of education. You know, August, you scared me with like the total Germany safety net model. Um, what, what I like from the German model is something different, which is they have an apprenticeship model for right. their, um, you know, and, and, and in the US, the only things that are apprentice, apprenticeship is like where you mix um, uh, school and work like at the same time. And you get like on the job training. Yeah, and the only things that we have for that is like plumber. That's like the only, like, but in Germany, they have like apprenticeship for like cybersecurity. And, and I think that's a, um, something we can learn from other nations uh, and you know, bring it over here. So again, complete agreement with August. There's, there's like no one single silver bullet solution that's sexy and easy because guess what? We're going through a really complicated change. Dave, is it cool if uh, I read off some questions? Yeah, absolutely. I got, I got them right here. All right. Um, this one is from Zach. He, uh, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but he says, what do each of you see as the prospect for startups like Winston Privacy that help users obscure their online footprint and control their data? I don't know which of you feels more comfortable tackling Peter, if you want to start out and then August, you can fill in. Um, it actually goes to that idea of the, you know, in the future, you may have William Gibson, but you'll also still have uh, Klausowitz. 
Um, and so that you'll have this like back and forth. Uh, someone get that quote and like tweet it out for us. Um, <laughs> so you have this like back and forth and, and look, we, we, we already start to see it. Um, and uh, that just like you see in, in insurgency, um, the adversary, their response to your high tech might be a high tech response. It might also be a low tech response. And so you might have these, um, and, you know, there's a, there's a product, there's a market for more of this obscuring. There's other ones that also try and wipe your web history, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, some of them try and uh, delete, uh, others uh, try and um, flood with misinformation. Mm -hmm. uh, and the same thing, uh, we play with this in the book, we're not going to plot spoil a lot, but like um, face recognition technology again, pulled from the real world. There's both um, high tech ways of, of tricking it. Um, and then there's low tech ways. Uh, and, um, you know, it might be anything from uh, a makeup that has micro beads in it that are reflective that um, trick the camera uh, to um, uh, Harlequin makeup block uh, white um, and black, uh, like, like the jesters or for um, uh, World War II and World War I history fans, um, the, that old school camouflage that you would have on the, the, the Navy ships, the sort of- Razzle dazzle. Yeah. Right, exactly, right? And so um, people putting that on their face that, that screws up the camera. Um, and, and some of the people that do it will do it because they are bad actors. Others will do it because they are the equivalent of jesters. And um, I love the parallel of um, Doc Barton shoes. Doc Martens started out as um, they were used by, you know, basically anarchists and police for street battles. And then punk rockers copied them. And then they became, you know, something that everybody was doing, you know, teenage girls were wearing their, their Doc Martens. And so what I'm getting at is a lot of this like back and forth, some of it may even become fashionable. So stylish, like mainstream, where it goes from, yeah. That makes I mean, sense. you know, does, does does privacy and secrecy have social cachet? You know, right? You know, are you going to date somebody who's not like up, got their opsec in order? Um, <laughs> and, and you know, and I, and I think there is there's kind of a, a today version of that, which is you know, animizing and things like that. But but as Pete pointed out, you know, the the equivalent in the digital uh, information realm of pixel spoofing, you know, a, a, a you know machine vision sensor. So like, can you put a pixel or two out of place on a vision snapshot of a stop sign to trick a car to accelerate, not brake, you know, doing things in the information space, you know, do you have an AI manager for not just like your email, but your whole social media presence, right? That is almost either a coach, kind of an angel and a devil on each shoulder, um, or, you know, something that can passively, uh, you know, kind of wash over your, 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 your data to give you a different presence online. Again, not for anything nefarious, but just to either stay on the right side of a social credit system, you know, whether it's you know called called one as as they do in China, or whether it's an equivalent one, like like we're kind of inching towards here. It's a great mm -hmm. question. And just to piggyback on Peter's point about high tech versus low tech attacks, it's interesting to see how uh, they're updating sniper doctrine at Fort Benning. They actually envision a world uh, of uh, you know electronic warfare on the battlefield, but the sniper utilizes you know bolt-action rifles and semi-automatic rifles. The technology is over 100 years old, can't be jammed. So they envision sending you know snipers stripped down of their technology down to you know a sniper and a spotting scope and making hand drawings for reconnaissance 
going into an electronic warfare battlefield and taking out whatever kind of enemy jamming devices they have and kind of paving the way for the main force. So it's really interesting to see how all that develops. But then of course you have to worry about AI. It's gonna be able to spot the snipers and cut through their camouflage like nothing ever before, so. And, and in uh, look in the book, we've got w the plan for the next gen sniper rifle yeah, in yeah. there. Um, uh, we won't reveal, but it, you know, it, it's not August and my dream of it. It's literally um, what's planned to come. I, I, had to, I had to look that up, Peter, because even I was calling bullshit on that, but no, that, that, that is a thing. <laughs> well, I know, uh, I know some, somebody was experimenting with a sniper defense system. It was just a, a, an array of ears, basically, uh, connect, you know, that I, that, uh, I guess kind of a neural network or whatever of ears that were connected to, uh, you know, these rapid guns. So yeah. if a sniper took a shot, these guns, I mean, these ears would triangulate on the sound and immediately, you know, like zoom in and, and shoot. Yeah. Yeah. And blast the area. So it, it's a challenging situation all around. So and, and you asked about ethics, you know, you said different ethics, that system, um, so it automatically slews towards wherever it detected the fire coming from. It's not a technology, technology question as to whether it then shoots. It's a law of war. Right. And, you know, and so one actor might say, US military might say, okay, even though you automatically slew, a human still has to approve it. Someone else might say, you know what? No, and our, it, it, because guess what? By the time the human approves, it's gone. And then um, one of the other things that, that you know, and, and when we talk about laws of war and application, it's not just about different nations and how they interpret it. It's also, frankly, about how you're doing in the war. Mm -hmm. um, right. And, you know, <laughs> I, I use the example of uh, um, in World War I, the U.S. decided that um, unrestricted submarine warfare completely violated the laws of war. It's actually why we entered the war against the Germans. And then um, 19, uh, December 7th, 1941, uh, we get hit Pearl Harbor, and you know how long it took us to change our mind? Five <laughs> hours. That thing that we said was complete violation. Five hours after after Pearl Harbor attack, order goes out: commit unrestricted submarine warfare against Japan. It's because we were losing and we were mad. Right. So uh, Alex wants to know what's the least likely jobs to be replaced by AI. I mean, I'd like to say science fiction writer, but that's <laughs> probably one of the easiest things. <laughs> one of the easiest things to automate. I mean, I, I think pizza pediatrician example is really interesting because if we see value in human-to-human -human interaction, so the start of life, perhaps even the end of life, uh, you know, those are two areas where you might find that that we do decide that you know the inefficiency of having a, a, a you know a human doctor is 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 less than or the value you know the, the drag of that is, is less than the, the value of, of you know feeling in that kind of magical human way you know safer or more connected to to a caregiver that you know is like us um but i honestly don't think that you could say the role of doctor for example can't be automated and, and, I, and I really do believe this rise in telemedicine depending on how you're taking all that information that you're gathering and feeding it what kind of networks you're feeding it into you're really going to be at a point where you can create, you know, the kind of telepresence, synthetic personalities that can do, you know, much of the work, uh, especially for worried well, uh, especially if those people are heavily sensorized already. So the 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 AI kind of knows what's going on because of the way it's been listening to them by other smart devices in their home. Perhaps it knows what they've been buying. It knows how often they've been exercising. You know what they've been drinking and where. 
uh, to use the uh, untapped example. Um, so, so I, I wouldn't really say there's too many fields I can, I can, I can see being off limits, but again, it's really up to us to decide what, what's important. You know, a, a paintings and, and, and fine art are a really nice example too. You can do some crazy neural net art right now. It has value. People are paying half a million dollars, you know, uh, as they did for the obvious art collectives, uh, one of their, you know, their works uh, last two years ago. But also we might not see the same value in, in machine art uh, as we do the, you know, the, the paint strokes of the human. So um, that's just gonna be one of those trade-offs I think and, and that we'll hopefully do actively and not passively. There was a military, um, US military uh, study at this and it, and it had two sides to it. One was they asked, um, they sort of did a survey of people of like, what did you think would, would, would never ever, uh, you know, which is more likely to be automated or not? So what did people think in the military? And then the other was like, okay, what's actually most likely to be? And what was fascinating is like um, the people, the respondents were saying things like, you know, I don't think uh, cooks will ever be automated. And you're like, uh, they're kind of already are starting to be, right? Not, you know, the, the number of people working in the kitchen, whether it's at McDonald's or on a warship, you know, is like whatever one one hundredth of it used to be. Like, if, you know, if you go to the old World War II ships, you know, the, the, the galleys there had massive numbers. Now it's, you know, it's a handful. Um, McDonald's, uh, the people in the back has gone from roughly like 60 to, to like four. Um, so they were like, you know, this might never happen. But when they looked at like uh, what um, the, the least likely um, as opposed to, you know, pilot or, you know, what your, your sniper example is a really good one because um, uh, it used to be that someone who did um, uh, spotting, whether it was for the sniper or um, a forward observer uh, calling in an um, airstrike, artillery strike, they used to be a task that required, you know, if you're talking about a forward observer, um, you know, that was a officer with huge amounts of training. Now it's just anyone with a laser pointer or any machine <laughs> with a laser pointer, right? So we see that change, right? Um, but the area that they said, okay, we're not gonna see that no one could contemplate, um, civil affairs, because it's, you know, it's all about that human and right, right. human intelligence, the social side of human intelligence. Um, and in turn, the trust from the other side. Uh, now that civil affairs may be pulling in all sorts of AI and robotics to make them more effective, um, you know, be it translator, be it, um, uh, data that will allow them to know the life history of the person that they're interacting with. But at the end of the day, there's still that sort of feel to it, much like, you know, in our story, um, you know, there's, there, there is robotics, but there's also still police because guess what? Um, there's certain things that, that each do. So last question, uh, or maybe two questions here from Max. He says, I work in defense AI and robotics. Can you speak to the technical references for Burn-In? I'm super excited to check it out. And does an AGI have rights? Mm. Ooh, good question. Um, so the book has, uh, as Pete said, like 27 pages of endnotes uh, that have sources that range from, you know, governmental reports to, you know, uh, you know, news clippings, um, you know, we, we'd like to, you know, be able to have someone have their mind blown in a scene and be like, oh, that can't really happen. And then realize, oh, wait, there is an actual endnote for that. So, so it's, uh, it's a deliberate, you know, choice with those endnotes to be transparent about how we do our research, but also because we hope that it's helpful too in, in going further and figuring some of those things out. 
as to whether AGIs have rights, man, that's that's like a theological question um, that that we probably have to start thinking about, even if it is something yeah. that, that could be 80 or 90 years away. You know, Saudi Arabia has obviously played with with robot rights uh, with some of their kind of synthetic, you know, robotic AI personalities. Um, so the conversation is starting on that. But I think there's another aspect, too, is who decides that? Um, you know, is it a UN question? Is it an, uh, do robots have rights in certain countries? Um, or even in certain communities, uh, for example. So there are a lot of different threads you can pull as a writer that I get really excited about. And, and I don't have a clear answer, but I, but I love the question. Uh, I think, I, I, I'm sorry, I was gonna give this sort of a fun way of ending yeah. it that, that goes to, um, uh, we're gonna end on um, what the US military and sex bots have in common. Um, uh, and it's from this question. And so you'll have all these looming, um, you know, applications and they're already starting to be out there. Um, and as a result, you get all these different, you know, and we've talked about some legal and moral uh, ethical questions that come out of it. Um, but one of the new ones that we don't have any history, you know, anytime you get a new technology, a bow and arrow, a, a submarine, you get these new questions. Um, but we get a new kind we never had before, um, some of which are, you know, machine permissibility. Um, what should the machine be allowed to do without us? But the other one is, what should humans be allowed to do to machines? Which has never been like, no, you know, you're not, how dare you right. kick your car? And this is emerging both in the idea of sex bots, which um, they're a thing uh, and gonna be more of a thing, um, but also the laws of war as they apply to unmanned systems used by the US military. Um, in both, the question is, what can humans do to them? Um, and uh, the US Air Force has concluded that unmanned systems have the same inherent right of self-defense that a manned platform has. That is, not only if you shoot at it, um, it can shoot back, but even more, even if it looks like you're going to shoot at it. So for example, if you light it up with a targeting radar, that we have the right to fire first because you might actually, the, the, the decision cycle is so quick when you light up a radar. And the US Air Force has taken that position that robots have rights of self-defense. Now, I don't oh, think God. they kind of meant it, but it's a real thing and actually I'm out there. And so uh, welcome to one of those awesome discussions from science fiction that's now like a real issue for war. It's fascinating. That's fascinating. Uh, Jack, we have one more question we missed up top. Uh, T-Bar gave us a donation, but then uh, he posted a question underneath. It's, uh, can you discuss the relationship between data acquisition tech and data management tech? Uh, in Operation Enduring Freedom, it seemed like we had more intelligence surveillance reconnaissance than ability to analyze and process it. Peter, do you want to start that in August? Yeah, and, and we try and depict that um, through, again, through the scenes uh, and um, one of the great scenes uh, that, that in terms of illustrating that is actually early on um, and our main character, is it's this scene where they're in the train station and they're flooded with data coming at them from all of these you know, sensors that are out there, face recognition, background. And um, she describes how you know, she gets that familiar feeling from when she was back in the military of um, you know, basically the fire hose of data trying to sip from it. And um, 
that the, the real problem that we have, um, and again, in the real world that we play out in the fiction is um, not so much data availability as um, trying to pick out what's relevant, what's useful or not. And um, again, that's that sort of the idea of um, people think the technology is gonna give you some kind of solution. In other cases, it can actually overwhelm you. And so then to the management side, um, ironically, we turn more and more to AI to manage that info overload for us. And we already do it right now in the way, you know, your email uh, inbox is sifted for, you know, most important messages or it, it, can, it can auto reply, you know, it auto fills out answers to you or to give a military version. Um, there's a, a AI that um, uh, it will assess the situation that's flowing into the talk and based off of um, all the prior like situations where a fire order then came out of it, it will pre-write the fire order. It won't say, okay, it won't order artillery to fire, but it'll pre-write the order. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and then say, hey, human, I've sifted through all the data for you and That's I'm managing for you. Yeah, um, or, or send the order out to that unit. And so um, is that kind of, you know, the back and forth, I guess what I'm getting at is that on one hand, all the data leads to, to info overload, but then the flip side is, is that more and more you turn to a machine to make more and more of the decisions about it. And um, yeah, that's uh, something that, you know, we live in our personal lives, but you might see it in battlefields too. Yeah, I can just tail on, you know, quickly. I, I think that's on the processing side of information where you're going to see the greatest inroads on, on you know, military AI, you know, and sooner too than, than you know, Terminator stalking a battlefield, in, in part because that's where the demand is so high. Mm -hmm. Well, guys, I think we already kept you past your time. Um, yes, Dave. We got one last question. Uh, Brendan just sent it in. Uh, so the technical side of doctor, nurse, or paramedic can be automated, but not the human interaction. 100% agreement. Um, yeah, and, totally and, agree. And, and and again, you know, we we play that out in the book. There's um, certain scenes that are actually set in the hospital, but um, we're all seeing that right now surrounding us um, in terms of uh, you are seeing, as August mentioned, more telemedicine. You're seeing robotics deployed into um, hospitals, uh, but then there's other roles that you know you you just can't right now automate. And so again, you know, some of it's going to be completely automated. Some of it will be the human aided. Some of it will be the human at a distance. You'll have all of that. And what will be that, that those different, that variation will be the case or is already in the case in medicine, but it's the same thing in everything I just said applies to warfare, right? Mm -hmm. We're seeing the same thing in warfare. And um, the question is, how do you best navigate it to the competing demands of everything from what's my best doctrine? What's, you know, the most cost effective? What, oh, by the way, is, you know, legal, moral, ethical? Um, and then finally, uh, what about the prior, you know, organizational mindset, uh, unit culture, um, you know, all the sort of things that, that, that steer us in, you know, to maybe not operate the best way, um, you know, put it bluntly, the, that's the way we, we, we always did it. You're like, well, maybe the world's changing, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so all those aspects are the case in war, they'll be the case in medicine, you name it. So guys, 
The book is called Burn In. Authors here, Peter Singer, August Cole. Guys, tell us where everyone can go and find your book. You can pick it up uh, at local bookstores. You can pick it up at Amazon. Uh, it, it drops on Tuesday, but pre-orders are obviously something that every writer uh, loves. So uh, we'd, we'd love to have people uh, get engaged with the book and then and then talk about it. You know, reach out to us on Twitter, other social media platforms. You know, this is an ongoing conversation that, that we're heavily invested in. So let's keep it up. Share this interview with your friends, folks. Hey, thanks everybody for joining us. Uh, please subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Uh, hit the uh, bell sign for your notifications uh, and join our Patreon. A dollar a month uh, keeps us deep in booze and our rent paid. So, And I just have one final shout out, although it's apropos for uh, this interview. Uh, I told my friend I'd mentioned hackasat.com. The Air Force is actually sponsoring a hacking competition. And whoever the winners are, they're going to get the chance to ethically hack a satellite in orbit. So that's going on right now, hackasat.com, if you want to go and take a look at it. And a friend of the show will be participating in that competition. So Peter and August, thanks so much for coming and spending, you. you know, an hour and great. 40 minutes with us tonight. Thank, thanks a lot for the chance to, to connect. We appreciate it. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I hope we can do it again. Me too. Take care. Right. Have a good night, everyone. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 